Go ahead and take your Bible and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 this morning. Kids, any kids can head out now. K through 3rd can meet in the back. Heather is back there and it will take him downstairs. Anyone else can also make their way downstairs now. 1 Corinthians 15 is where we're going to be this morning. I didn't actually put together a, a list of verses here. There's 58 verses in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, maybe a little bit different from what we usually do when we start out, we read the text, we process through it together this morning. But this morning, I want to take this whole chapter because there's so much here that's absolutely vital to our understanding and to our lives as Christians. Because at the heart of 1 Corinthians 15 stands the doctrine of the resurrection. The doctrine of the resurrection. And for us, as God's people, there is nothing more fundamental. There is nothing more fundamental than the doctrine of the resurrection. When we talk about the resurrection, we're talking about Jesus who came and died, but then he was raised from the dead and now rules and reigns at the Father's right hand. But the doctrine of the resurrection includes also what that means for us as people. What does it mean that we as people... uh, are participants in the resurrection from the dead. And so when we talk about the doctrine of the resurrection, yes, we're talking about Jesus specifically as the first fruits, as Paul says in this chapter, as the first fruits from the dead, the one who goes before his people, but we're also talking about ourselves as those who will participate, who will actively uh, be raised as Christ is, is raised. So I'm not going to read specific, specifically from this text, although I'm going to give you like the fire hose method this morning. I'm going to give you 10 points. Usually we don't get more than three, so I'm going to give you 10 this morning. So fair warning, uh, there are 10 coming your way. Um, if you're a note taker and frantically trying to write these down, actually I put notes out there. I hope there's enough. Um, I put some notes out there with all of these 10 points so you can write in the margins instead of, instead of writing Um, trying to write down all of these. A couple of them will move through quickly, but the majority will slow down in and spend a little bit of time. And I'll try to limit our time as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 then. If you have your copy of God's Word, um, if you grabbed one in the pew, you'll note that that one is a little bit different translation that I'm going to be reading from. You'll see as I read some of these verses, you'll see a little bit different. If you want to see word for word exactly what I'm saying, right on the table back there, uh, there are ESVs available as, as well. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15 this morning, thinking about the doctrine of the resurrection. To have our four-year-old this week said, uh, he came into our room yesterday morning and said to Rebecca, he said, uh, I did something bad. And that's not an unusual way for a conversation to start with him, but, but the reality is he, he thought that what he had done was actually had some devastating effects. And you remember last week when we talked about death and we were talking about how gospel growth comes to us through reflecting on the resurrection of Christ. Tev, yesterday, he, we have a whiteboard, and we have, they're supposed to, the boys are supposed to clean up the playroom every day. And so each day is written, and if, and if they clean up the playroom on that day, they get a little star next to it, and then there's a reward at the end of the week if they, if they do their, their chore. Today, my dad and I are taking the boys camping in Medora, which is exciting. We haven't done that yet. Um, we've gone camping a couple of times, but not something this, this much fun. Pray for us. It's going to be a good time, I hope. But he wanted the camping trip to come a little bit quicker. So he saw Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday written on the board, and he erased Saturday, thinking that if he ignored Saturday's existence on the whiteboard, that it would just go and we would be in Sunday, and then we'd go camping. That's not the way it works. But again, when we were thinking about death last week, as we're thinking about the resurrection and thinking about what comes before the resurrection, particularly death, we, we realize that oftentimes we ignore it. We just ignore the reality of death in our world. But death is a very real part. But the great benefit, and what we talked about, this gospel growth that comes through reflecting on the resurrection, reminds us that Jesus made the end, not the end. And that's where our hope lies. As Christians, that were, that's where our hope lies. Our hope for today or tomorrow isn't a pithy statement or a helpful pat on the back from a friend, but in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's where our hope is, friends. And so this morning as we 
plow through 1 Corinthians 15. That's what I want to see. Lots of, lots of stuff here. High pressure. This is, again, the fire hose method. We're going to take a drink from the fire hose. But we can't move from 1 Corinthians without beginning to dive into some of these basic understandings. We're turning on the water. It's going to come at you as hard this morning. So last week, you'll remember, we saw some of these objections, or we saw some of these things that, that, the, uh, that, the, that the, the, the Corinthians said. If you look at verse 12, Paul says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Some of the Corinthians, some of the people in the church in Corinth were actually denying the bodily resurrection. Now there's a whole host of reasons why they might do this. One simply being because, because they didn't think, because of the outpouring we talked about last week, the outpouring of the manifestations of the Spirit that were happening among them. They thought to themselves, well, there are people dying around us, but we're not going to die because we've got the Spirit of Christ. It's come down on us hard. The other reason, I think, is because, uh, because in Greek culture, the body was something to be shed. The body wasn't something to hold on to. And that makes sense to me because as I get older, I celebrated a birthday last week, another trip around the sun, and as I made my another trip around the sun, I noticed that it's a little bit harder to get up out of bed. I'm a little more stiff. And so it makes sense in Greek culture to begin to say, well, why would I want to keep this physical body? Let's shed it. Let's be something else. Let's move on. And so when Paul says to the Corinthians, you're going to be raised, they're like, why would I want this body? This body's a mess, and it's susceptible to decay and disease. And, it, and you'll remember all the way back into chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, he hits this on the head right away in 1 Corinthians 1.18. He says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. The foolishness that comes through the gospel, that the God-man Jesus Christ came to earth and died, that's incredibly offensive in Greek culture. And then that he was raised bodily. There's actually a physical body that he took on that is incredibly offensive in Greek culture. You remember he says Jews seek signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block, he says. So Greek culture saw this physical body as something to be shed, not something that would be restored or renewed. But again, the doctrine of the resurrection, this doctrine that gives us hope, that's unpacked for us in 1 Corinthians 15, says quite the opposite. We, in fact, will have, I don't want to get ahead of myself, we will, in fact, have physical bodies in new creation. Upon our death, we will die physically. We will be raised bodily to live forever in the presence of our Creator. Now, you'll see that Paul asks these questions, right? In verse 12, this is his question. How can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? But if we get to verse 35, he says, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Again, because the doctrine of the resurrection is foolishness or silliness to the Corinthians, or at least some in their midst, I, I sort of read this question like Paul's anticipating this question, or maybe it was directly asked to him, but I sort of anticipate the tone with which this question was asked. Okay, then, Paul, if you're so smart, how are the dead raised? What, what kind of body do they come with then, Paul? If you've got this all down, tell us, and Paul does. Paul goes into the arguments for why the resurrection will happen in the way that it did. So I want you to see all of the points that Paul makes in this whole chapter. Not all of them. We're not going to get to everything. But the reality is that I want you to see and begin to develop and know this doctrine of the resurrection as a fundamental tenet for who we are as God's people. It stands right at the heart. It is the hope that we have that the end is not the end. That the end is not the end. So this chapter is helpful in establishing our doctrine of the resurrection and helping us determine why the resurrection is essential to us as Christians. So again, 10 points this morning, 10 ideas that Paul writes about here in 1 Corinthians 15 that should build our understanding of the importance of the resurrection for us as the followers of Jesus, as well as hopefully the goal is to excite our affections for our Creator. 
that we would walk out of here and that we'd love Jesus more, that we would love our God more because we recognize and realize that what we inhabit right now will be raised to live forever. So, okay, let's get to these 10 points then. 10 points. First, we're going to linger here at the beginning for a little bit. First, Jesus died and was raised. Simple. A simple statement. Jesus was di- died and was raised. Look at verses 3 and 4. Paul writes, For I delivered to you of a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Paul just gives us statement of fact. Statement of fact. Now, what are the scriptures Paul is talking about? Because he says that twice here, at the end of verse 3 and the end of verse 4, in accordance with the scriptures. Well, I think Paul's perspective is the Old Testament that it all points to Jesus. And if we look at the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we can see also that all of Jesus, that's Jesus' perspective also, all of this points to him. Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So when he says law and prophets, Jesus is talking about the whole of the Old Testament, all of the scriptures. So Jesus claims to have come to fulfill the entirety of the Old Testament. Specifically, it's easy to see this idea concentrated with a few key passages. Let me give you these couple verses. Isaiah 53, 5, not an unfamiliar one. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Isaiah 53, 12, he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus died in accordance with the scriptures, Isaiah, Isaiah 53, 5 and 12. And Paul's main point here is that Jesus died. Jesus died, literally died. Tom Schreiner says it like this, the death of Christ for sins was planned by God beforehand. And Paul believes that those who read the Old Testament scripture rightly will see this. So Paul is making this assumption. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Jesus was also raised in accordance with the Scriptures. Same chapter, again, Isaiah 53, verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Another translation here, which I think is super helpful in this Isaiah 53, 11. Add some clarity. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. Coming up out of the grave, Jesus saw the light of life and was satisfied. That's dripping with resurrection truth. And this simple fact that Jesus died, that Jesus died and was physically raised, stands at the heart of what we believe as Christians. Many people have, over the years have taken the resurrection of Jesus and said many things about it, taken positions that deny the physical nature of Jesus' resurrection. They say things like, well, he was just raised and it was kind of this ethereal thing that showed up and was visible but not, not really physical. And they've said that it was made up by his followers, that the resurrection of Jesus was simply made up by his followers. Or that when he came back, the body he had was not physical, or that Jesus never completely died. That his heart rate just went way down, and then they put him in the ground, and then it came back. Or, some people have argued that it's all a metaphor. But Paul says it very clearly here. Jesus died and was raised. Bodily, physically. Friends, you cannot be a Christian. You cannot be a Christian and believe that Christ was not raised bodily. 
You cannot be a Christian. It is essential that we believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. The question that we ask is, how can we be certain of that fact, though? How can we be certain of that fact? And that's the next point. Look with me at verse 6. Well, let's look at 4, 5. Let's look at 5, 6, and 7, and 8. And then he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely and born, he appeared also to me. So Jesus proved his bodily resurrection by appearing to large groups of people. Most of these men were still alive when Paul wrote to the Corinthians. Peter, Cephas, the twelve, then to more than 500 at once, then to James and to all of the apostles, then finally to Paul on the Damascus Road. In the, in the ancient world, in the ancient world, the idea of witness was important. Eyewitness, important. It's important in our world too, but maybe carried a little bit more weight in the ancient world. It's important to see that Paul makes an appeal to eyewitnesses. And it was important to have an eyewitness of two or three. That would establish credibility to someone's story. Paul gives us hundreds of eyewitnesses here. He doesn't give us just two or three. He gives us hundreds, hundreds of eyewitnesses. Paul would write in 2 Corinthians at the end of the, cha- at the, end of the, the letter, in chapter 13, verse 1, he says, every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. How do we know that Jesus raised from the dead bodily? Because there were 500 plus people, men, who saw him, who witnessed him. And so Paul appeals to these eyewitnesses, to the bodily resurrection of Jesus. That would sort of a sufficient reminder to the Corinthians and the validity of Paul's words. Paul was an eyewitness to the resurrected Jesus. He realized that one eyewitness was not enough. Jesus provided hundreds of eyewitnesses by appearing to the twelve, to the apostles, and then to a large group of people. For us this morning to demand further evidence of the physical resurrection of Jesus to ignore Paul's appeal to these eyewitnesses and deny ultimately the sufficiency of Scripture. To seek answers archaeologically may be a point of interest, but God's word is sufficient and does not require outside support. This is spoken to Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is not a lie. God cannot lie. The Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul to appeal to these eyewitnesses to the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Forgive me for being nitpicky. I'm going to pick some nits here. We sing a song on on Easter. We ask the question, you ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. That's not how we know he lives. It's not. We know he lives. The Corinthians would have rejected that argument out of hand. They would have dismissed it. And rightly so. We know Jesus lives because the all-sufficient, infallible, inerrant word of God says he does, which appeals to the eyewitness of over 500 people, including the man who wrote this letter directly to the church in Corinth. Third point this morning. Jesus was raised, and therefore our sins are forgiven. Jesus was raised, and therefore our sins are forgiven. Look at verse 17 with me. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. If Jesus, was not ra- if Jesus was not raised, then we are still in our sins, and that makes our belief in him futile. It makes it meaningless. It makes it complete stupidity. Romans 4.25 says that Jesus was delivered up 
for our trespasses, our sins, and raised for our justification. So we have to ask ourselves the question this morning, if verse 17 is a reality, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and, you're st- and you are still in your sins. And Romans tw- 4.25, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. What does it mean to be justified? Friends, it means that our sins are forgiven, that Christ's righteousness becomes our own righteousness, and we have been declared legally righteous before God. And all of this comes through what? It comes through faith. It comes through belief. Faith in what, we ask ourselves? Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart, what? That God raised him from the dead, doctrine of the resurrection, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Believe, have faith that God raised Jesus from the dead. Do you see how the doctrine of the resurrection is absolutely essential to Christianity? You will be saved from the wrath of God set against you because of your sin. If you have faith that God raised Jesus from the dead. If Jesus was not raised, then what is the end of that sentence? What is the end of what Paul writes there in Romans 10.9? What is the end? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, what? Our society oftentimes detaches faith from object. We, we start to talk about believe. We say, just believe. Just have faith. It's a popular line in film. Just believe. Believe in what? You could believe in yourself, but how would that get you out of your sin? Can that which is sinful deliver itself from its sinfulness? It can't. That's Paul's argument. It can't. Something without sin must be introduced. Belief in self is futility. I believe in myself. I believe that I exist. But how is my state improved through that belief? It isn't. Belief or faith requires an object. Paul says the object of our faith is the reality that Jesus was physically raised from the dead. Verbal confession of the lordship of Jesus Christ. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Heart level faith that God raised Jesus from the dead. This is the basis of our justification, the forgiveness of our sins, and the righteousness of Christ given to us. That is justification, forgiveness of our sins, and the righteousness of Christ given to us. The two things that we could not do by ourselves, pay for our sin, and have perfect obedience before God, given to us in Christ Jesus. And this is all only a reality with the resurrection. We cannot be saved. We cannot be justified without the physical resurrection of Jesus. Paul says it right here. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. You cannot deny the bodily, physical resurrection of Jesus Christ and be a Christian. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Fourth thing this morning, Jesus was raised, and that gives all of life meaning. Jesus was raised, and that gives all of life meaning. We are cripplingly introspective. (laughs) We are always looking for meaning in our lives. Paul gives us the only thing that we need to have meaning. Look at verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people are most to be pitied. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now Paul is following this trail of argumentation, and he's saying if Jesus is not raised from the dead, then we only have hope in this life, And if that is true, if we only have hope for right now, then we are of most people to be pitied. 
This world is full of suffering and sadness. Consolation that comes in the form of it will get better is completely meaningless. You are absolutely to be pitied apart from the resurrection of Jesus. We all are. 100%. The resurrection gives meaning to Jesus' words in John 16.33. Jesus says this to his followers. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Without the resurrection, your life has no meaning no matter how many inspirational quotes you read on Instagram or how many inspirational quotes you embroider on a pillow. With the resurrection, nothing in your life is wasted. No moment of suffering, no tear, no grief. Nothing is wasted. Nothing at all with the resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus was not raised, then you will not be raised. Jesus says, John 16.33, to his disciples, many of whom would be killed because of their sheer association with Jesus. Paul lived in constant threat of this reality. But it's not exactly known how, how Paul died, but it's largely held that he was beheaded in Rome. If Jesus didn't come back from the dead, Paul is one of the biggest idiots in history. If the bodily resurrection didn't happen, Paul is the most foolish man to ever live. Why? Because he was radically sold out for the gospel. Why would he take a moment to write this letter? There's a lot of words in this letter. Why would he take any time to write any of this if Jesus hadn't been raised? He was radically sold out for the truth of the gospel, which hinges on the resurrection of Christ and the future resurrection of those who are in Christ. If you're here this morning and you don't think that Jesus rose from the dead, you should go. You should go now. Friends, your life is pitiable. Why would you take a moment and spend it here? Why would you spend a second in a place where you disagree with the most fundamental belief? You cannot be a Christian and deny the resurrection of Jesus. If you don't believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus, you you can you being right here right now is stupid. It's foolish. It's sad. It's Paul says it's pitiable. It's pitiable because you're trying to earn something that you don't even believe exists. You're trying to get right with God so that you can Do what exactly? It's better, Paul says, just go eat and drink. Just go get some good food. Just drink. Tomorrow you die. There's nothing after that. If Jesus wasn't raised, this is it. Nothing else. Don't waste any more time at church. You should be a hedonist. You should be a hedonist. You should go be a hedonist. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, But Jesus was raised. Make no mistake. And then, then, then your life has meaning. You have incentive to truly live. To truly consider others and not just yourself and the way that you were designed to live with others in mind. Paul's life and death make sense. Beheaded in Rome makes no sense if the gospel isn't true because Jesus is still in the grave. Paul is to be pitied if that's the reality. He realizes this. It makes sense that we would follow Jesus into self-sacrificial love instead of self-centered indulgences because death is not the end. Jesus made the end not the end. But make no mistake, you may not deny the resurrection with your lips, but if you're living for yourself only, you're denying the resurrection. By living for yourself, you're saying that this is it. Life is temporary, short, painful, isolated. This is all there is. You have to be insane to believe that you can achieve for yourself any kind of pleasure or satisfaction in this life. What are you trying to keep that you cannot? What are you ignoring that you cannot lose? If Jesus was not raised from the dead, Paul should be pitied. You and I who are trying to follow Jesus should be pitied. Pity me. I have the saddest job in the world. 
What is it? What is all this if Jesus wasn't raised? The sermons, the discipleship, the care for one another, the organization. It's all stupid and sad if Jesus isn't raised from the dead. But Jesus was raised from the dead. And that gives the self-sacrificial life of the believer meaning. Fifth and sixth, these two I'm going to take relatively quickly. Fifth, Jesus was raised and we will be raised at his second coming. Simple statement. Jesus was raised, and therefore we will be raised at his second coming. Look at verses 22 and 23. For as in Adam all died, so also in Christ, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in, Christ, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. This is an idea that Paul cashes in on a handful of times in the New Testament. Adam ushered in death through the sin that came through Adam. Death was ushered into the world. We then are born into Adam. We are his posterity. We are his descendants. We have his nature and sinfulness. Jesus ushered in life. Those who have trusted Christ for the forgiveness of their sins are in Christ. In Adam comes death. In Jesus comes life. We who are in Christ will be raised with Christ. We sang it a few minutes ago. Jesus, the true and better Adam, come to save the hell-bound man. Those who are in Adam, those who are joined with Adam, union with Adam, will go to hell. Those who are with Christ will live forever in the presence of their creator. Sixth then, Jesus was raised, and then he ascended into heaven, where he reigns without opposition. No opposition. Verses 25 and 26. For he must reign, Jesus, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. The last enemy was death. It's been handled. Seventh, Jesus was raised, and so will we be raised in bodies that are imperishable, glorious, powerful, and spiritual. Jump all the way down to 42 through 44. Paul writes this. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. This comes on the heels of the questions that Paul is addressing in verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Paul says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. All of these adjectives, imperishable, glorious, powerful, and spiritual, all of these adjectives are used by Paul to describe what our resurrected bodies will be like. So when we die, when we go in the grave, and when Jesus returns and we're called up out of the grave, or when Jesus returns and we are changed, like Paul will say in a twinkling of an eye, when we are changed to reflect God or to reflect Jesus and to have our resurrected bodies, they will be these four things. Imperishable. It will not die. It's eternal. Get that idea. The next one he says it'll be glorious. These bodies will have splendor. They will reflect perfectly our creator. That's what we're designed to do. We were created in the image of God to reflect God perfectly. And we will do that in our bodies. Right now, our bodies are distorted because of sin, but when we are raised, those blemishes will be removed. And it will be totally evident that we bear the image of a holy God. Right now, it feels like the jury's out. But right now, but once we are raised, we will be glorious. Paul says powerful. Again, a perfect reflection of God's powerful character. Sown in weakness. A simple little acorn that you could crush in your hands or that gets eaten by a squirrel. Grows into a mighty oak that can withstand a tornado. Our resurrected bodies will be capable of things that we cannot even dream of. 
because of the limiting factors of sin here in this life, the corruption of chaos and decay. Charles Hodge would write, the future body will be instinct with energy, endowed, it may be, with faculties of which we have now no conception. We as people will be raised powerfully to dwell in power, to reflect the power of God in ways that we can't even fathom, in ways that we can't even begin to imagine. <laughs> Your body this morning, it, they just don't respond in the way that we want them to. These bodies will respond perfectly. The final adjective that Paul uses is spiritual. Now, this does not mean not physical. Please hear this. This does not mean not physical. You see this? What we say? But Paul says spiritual body. And we're like, that's an oxymoron, Paul. No, it's not. What, what Paul means here, we have to consider back into verse, or chapter 2, verse 14, what Paul writes there. And the way that he uses the word natural and the way that he uses the word spiritual. Verse 44, in our chapter this morning, chapter 15, Paul says, it is sown in a natural body that is raised in a spiritual body. What does Paul mean? 1 Corinthians 2.14 lends some insight. Paul writes, the natural person does not accept the things of God, of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to discern, or he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So the natural body, therefore, is corrupted by sin. This is our current state, friends. This is our current state. You and I, despite the fact that we are in Christ, have not yet been raised with Christ. We indwell this natural body, although we have been given a new nature in Christ. But the spiritual body is the resurrected body. The body that is not corrupted by sin, but is fully in tune with the Holy Spirit. This is what it means to be spiritual, to be fully in tune with the Spirit of God. There is a body adapted to the Spirit, which is coming when we are raised with Christ. So I want you to see this very clearly. When you are born, you are born into a state of sinfulness. You are born naturally. You are the natural man. You're your nature is inclined towards sin. And your body reflects that. When you become a Christian, when you trust that Jesus died, buried, and was raised for your sin, for your justification, when you confess your sins, and when you, when you repent, and when you turn from those things, and when you are made new in that moment, and then all of a sudden there's this war that occurs between your natural body that still is indwelled by sin and your new nature that, Christ, that God has given you in Christ Jesus. Those don't match. If you're a Christian, they don't match this morning. That's what the doctrine of the resurrection is about. Those two getting back to a place where they match, where they're designed to be, where the things now are commensurate with one another, where our spiritual nature that's given to us in tune with the Holy Spirit now matches our, our bodies, imperishable, glorious, powerful, and spiritual. That's what the doctrine of the resurrection says. That's the hope that we have, that this war that's going on inside of us, that the things that we're doing that we don't want to do, the way that we're sinning and the way that we're actively only thinking about ourselves when we pray, God, would you please make us more like Jesus in order that we might see the things that we do and set ourselves aside so that we may serve others and love them well. Our body of sin continues to rail against that and we're at war with the flesh, the scriptures tell us. Paul writes again to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He's talking about the spirit inside, the new man. 1 Corinthians 15 is about the new man matching up with the resurrected body. So when he says spiritual, he's saying in tune with the Spirit of Christ, in tune with the Holy Spirit. There is a body adapted to the Spirit which is coming when we are raised with Christ. Eighth then. Eighth. Jesus was raised 
And therefore, immediately when Jesus returns, whether we die physical death or are still alive, we will receive that imperishable, glorious, powerful, and spiritual body. Whether we die a physical death or we are still alive, immediately upon Christ's return, we will receive that imperishable, glorious, and spiritual body. Look at verse 51 and 52. Paul says, Behold, he says, Look, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be all changed. In the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. This is the when to the what. The what do we get is this imperishable, glorious, powerful, spiritual body. When will that happen, Paul? He tells us right here. Paul says immediately, when we, when we die or when Jesus comes back. Some would argue that there is a period of time between Jesus' return and the receiving of this new body, but I think the text is clear that it happens immediately. Paul says, in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, when the trumpet sounds, the dead shall be raised with their new bodies and the living will be changed into that new body. Paul says something very similar in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 and 17. He says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Ninth, Jesus was raised and therefore death is to be mocked and derided openly. We're generally nice people. Paul invites us to mock death. Look at verses 54 and 55. When the perishable put on the imperishable and the mortal put on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory, or death is where is your sting? Or death, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? This is like a perfect game in game seven of the World Series. The stakes are high. The stakes have never been higher. But Jesus crushed death. He smothered it. Death died with less than a whimper. And we need to linger here for a second and really think about it. Death killed everyone. It took everyone who had ever lived. That's death's M.O. A lot of time it comes slowly over years and years, but sometimes it shows up unexpectedly. But no one has ever escaped it. It's the final enemy. Death is the deadliest thing ever. It seems almost foolish to say it. But Jesus ended it through his resurrection. The enemy had never lost, lost. And it was the greatest defeat in history. It didn't even come close. Now, when Paul says this, it doesn't exactly translate. Sounds like a a Shakespearean insult. Like, I bite my thumb at you, and you're like, you do what? Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Say, oh, death, where is your victory? Imagine you go to work. You know your coworker's favorite basketball team? The night before, they got beat by 40 points. And you show up, and around the water cooler, you say to your, to your coworker, wow, big win for your guys last night, huh? Complete sarcasm. They got annihilated. You say, where is your victory? Death, we can't find it. Because you're a loser. Oh, death, where is your sting? That thing that you thought you were good at, you're not. Death, your game plan was completely picked apart. This is Paul's posture as he speaks to death. He's like a fan in the stands jeering at the opposing team. I think we call those Philadelphia sports fans. 
This is Paul's posture. Paul pokes the bear. He has no fear. Death is not the end. Therefore, do not be afraid. Finally then, number 10. Then we'll draw a conclusion. Number 10. Jesus was raised and therefore satisfied the law for us. He met all the expectations. Look at verses 56 and 57. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death comes through sin. It may seem like a confusing statement, so let's unpack it. The sting of death is sin, Paul says. Right at the beginning of verse 56. The sting of death is sin. Death comes through sin. Look at Romans 5.12. Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. Death becomes harmless where sin has no hold. In Christ, sin has no hold on us. It's paid for. It's forgiven through the blood of Jesus. Then Paul says, and the power of sin is the law. Now when Paul says the law here, he's not talking about the written law. He's not talking about, you'll see that the translators in your Bible opted for a lowercase l, not an uppercase l. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. What is he talking about when he says the power of sin is the law? He's not talking about the law that comes at the beginning of the Bible, the first five books. He's talking about the law, lowercase l, in the sense that there is a standard. There is a standard. God himself is the standard of every person. As those who are created in God's image, God himself is the standard of every person. We are called to immediately upon being created, Adam and Eve were called to live in conformity to his character and his commands. This is the law Paul is talking about here. And also in Romans 4, Paul shows us this. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Where there is no standard, there cannot be sin, Paul says. But there is a standard. No one can be held to a standard that doesn't exist. But there is a standard. So sin has power because there is a standard. And death is the result of sin. But Jesus Christ met God's standard perfectly and therefore was not held by death. The standard was met. Jesus lived a life that perfectly met the standard and therefore drained sin of its power. And the power of sin is the law, but when the law is met, there is no power. Jesus disarmed death because he himself was without sin and defeated it once and for all. Sin broke us and Jesus made us whole by living a life that satisfied the law, that perfectly met the standard. He choked out death. And you and I are the eternal beneficiaries of Jesus' work. So what? So what, Paul? What is the reality of Jesus' resurrection and your, our promised resurrection call us to? So I'll ask you that question directly. What is the reality of Jesus' resurrection and your promised resurrection call you to? The answer is in verse 58. Last verse in the chapter. When we see the word therefore, we need to take into consideration what comes before it. I labored over this this week. I think that therefore has all of chapter 15 in mind. Therefore, because of all of these 10 things that we've talked about, because of everything that Paul wrote to the Corinthians in chapter 15, beginning with the words in verse 1, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in, according, in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. It appears to all these people, 
Christ is proclaimed, raised from the dead. Therefore, you can't say there is no resurrection from the dead. His, his resurrection is for your sins. He gives life meaning. Jesus is the first fruits. You no longer are in Adam, but in Christ. All of these things that we've discussed this morning come to a head in verse 58. And Paul says, therefore, my beloved brothers, what does this mean for you? Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that you're in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. The reason, then, that you should give your whole life to Jesus, the reason that you should radically live for others and not just yourself, the reason you should die to self and self-interest, the reason you should live actively among your brothers and sisters in the local church, the reason you should not love the world or the things of the world is because everything has been given to you in Jesus Christ. And so the answer to the question, what does the reality of Jesus' resurrection and your promised resurrection call you to, is that you are to give all that you are to making Jesus famous. Jesus died and was raised and was witnessed by hundreds of people. In Christ, our sins are forgiven. In Christ, all of our life is meaningful. In Christ, we'll be raised this second coming and we'll be raised in bodies that are imperishable, glorious, powerful, and spiritual, perfectly in tune with God himself. This will all happen immediately when Jesus returns. In Christ, we have nothing to fear because Jesus met the standard and death is openly mocked. In Christ, we have everything. Therefore, Paul writes, verse 58, steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. How is this the case? How is this the conclusion? Because Jesus took the thing that you were created for and made you able to be it. Because of sin, you are unable to do this. You are unable to abound in the work of the Lord. Your labor is in vain apart from Christ. But the reality is, what Paul writes in Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship. We, those who are in Christ, are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The resurrection of Jesus and the promise of our future resurrection gives us the ability to live into that which for which we were created. Too many prepositions there. The work of making much of Jesus by building up the church in love. So, friends, be steadfast in love. Be immovable in love. Reflect the love that God shows you so abundantly through sending his son for the forgiveness of your sins and welcoming you into his family for all of eternity. Let's pray.